Hi, I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. We're married, and we like to do a lot of different things together. But what got us together initially was that we love to eat and we like to drink. And we love to learn how our favorite foods and beverages came to be. In each episode of this podcast, we'll talk about something delicious and answer the question, Where did this come from? So it was a it was a pretty quiet Christmas around here. It certainly was. <laughs> Definitely different than the the normal. It I'm was, assuming for yeah. most people listening, it was too. Yeah, but it was it was still really nice. It was great. We had a great Part, time. Like you know, I missed seeing all of our family and friends yeah. and stuff. But um, in some ways, it was like nice to just chill, which it I guess was, is what we've been doing like all year. But <laughs> but I mean, chilling at Christmas versus chilling when you're forced. Right, it was a yeah, bit yeah. We had like fire in the fireplace. We made some really good meals. Um, yeah, had some good wine. And we're only at the beginning of of break. Right, we're now in true. that weird middling between Christmas and New Year's phase. Yeah, where you where don't the days know like literally disappear. What day it is, or what time it is, or who you are, or anything. which is different from the last nine or ten months. And yeah. I'm not quite sure how, but. Yeah, it's different because it's holiday style. Yes. Yeah. You're actually relaxed now versus this ever, ever present tension. Right. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. On that light note, <laughs> welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Where Did This Come From? Uh, the podcast where we talk about all things delicious and their origin stories. I'm Trevor. And I'm Laura. And this is our season one finale of Where Did This Come From? Ooh. I can't did believe it. Did a whole it. season. I, we didn't even know what we and would do. And people listened, I sort know. of. <laughs> well, we didn't know what we would do when we first started this. We said before, it was really just an outlet for us to be creative during this this weird downtime we've been living in this year. Um, but it's been such a great experience for the two of us to be bringing you these episodes every week for the last 20 weeks. That's a really long time. That's a really, that's actually. almost a half a year. Wow. That like kind of flew by. I know. I can't believe. I can't, it also I, like seems like it's been decades. <laughs> And no time at all. Um, And I can't believe it's coming to an end, um, but some interesting uh, tidbits. So our our little podcast, Me and You, Mm -hmm. has been listened to in 25 states. Okay. Half of the USA. That's cool. Considering we have no fame or following behind us other than friends and family, I'm I'm proud of that. Also, including the US, 13 different countries have listened to an episode of Where Did This Come From? Including far-flung places such as the Philippines, Philippines, sorry, Philippines, the Philippines, Malaysia, India, Russia, Sweden. Wow. I don't know if I said India, but India. You did say India. France, but... the UK. I could go on and on until I stop at 13. But <laughs> I thought that was really cool to kind of that dig into cool. that and see that information. Yeah. So really. We are an international podcast. We are international <laughs> podcast with 98% of our plays coming right here in the US of A. Um, so but it is still incredibly humbling and exciting to see that. And we cannot wait to bring you even more interesting stuff to talk about in season two, more special guests, uh, probably even a new, a slightly new format to how we're going to be doing the shows every week. So stay tuned yeah. for that. You'll be getting regular posts from us as we go through our, our off season, our relaxing off season, <laughs> our hiatus, our hiatus here at where did this come from? So since it is our season one finale, uh, we decided to go out with a bang or a pop of the cork, if you will, by talking about one of my favorite things, just in time for New Year's Eve, 
Champagne. Mm. Champagne, yes. Lovely. I do love some good bubbles. I know, I know. Don't we all? So I get really excited about wines, of course, as Laura knows, and anyone out there listening who knows me knows. So I'm going to do my best to be as brief as possible with this one. It Um, is really funny. I think we've probably commented on this before, but you've done all the like wine and beer episodes. And, and I've done all of the dessert episodes. I have done food. Which, I've done food episodes. I know, I know. But I feel like our we both like have our specialty that we gravitate towards, and yours is the boozy stuff, and mine is the sweet yeah. stuff. Which means we're gonna have to shake it up in season two. I know, and I know. get we'll out of our comfort zone exactly. Because the whole point of this is to learn and to teach each other stuff. Exactly. So. But, sorry, carry on. No, no. I'm just gonna say there's so much we can talk about with champagne. So I'm gonna be as as try to be as direct as I possibly can. Yeah. But before we go too too deep. There is an important distinction to make um, really quickly here. So champagne is a type of sparkling wine, Mm -hmm. but not all sparkling wine is champagne. Now, a lot of people out there might already know that, but it's important for me to say as a sommelier to get that out there. There's lots of different types of sparkling wines in the world. Cava, Prosecco, uh, Francia Corta, Contrado, and, and more than that, obviously. But champagne can only be called champagne if it comes from the Champagne region of France. So what we won't be covering today are other sparkling wines, just true champagne. There's going to be plenty much or a lot more time to talk about the Cava's and the Prosecco's out there in the world. Was Um, there sparkling wine in other places before Before champagne? So champagne is not the first sparkling wine. However, uh, a lot of sparkling wines from other parts of the world are done in what is called the um, the méthode champenoise, or the traditional method, or the classic method, uh, which is the way champagne is made, which we're going to okay. get into a little bit of that yeah. today. But the actual oldest historical writings they can find about sparkling wine recipes and such is still from France, but it's from a place called Limoux, mm-hmm. and Limoux is in the Languedoc, so the oh, okay. one of the southernmost wine-growing regions of France. It's actually the region that abuts uh, Catalonia. In okay. Spain. Um, so, yeah. Okay. So, they, they started it and then Champagne. Yes. Perfected the technique. Yes. Or made slightly their own different technique. technique right. yeah. And different grapes, too, are in Champagne mm-hmm. versus Limoux. Okay. Um, and then it spread to everywhere else. It spread else from everywhere, there. yeah, because of its notoriety. Um, yeah. But there is a very famous person we're going to talk about in a little bit, Dom Perignon, who actually learned uh, what he knew about sparkling wine from the Limoux region of France. Okay. Yes, so the Limoux region kind of started it. Champagne really made it what it is today. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, because of the location of Champagne in France, it's about 75 miles northeast of Paris. Um, it's kind of like in the crossroads for all of Western Europe, just where it's located. So it's seen a lot of action over the centuries. Um, it's actually by the 17th century, so the 1600s, the city of, uh, I'm going to say this wrong several times, but... The city is spelled R-E-I-M-S, the capital of Champagne, uh, but it's Reims. So the city of Reims has seen destruction seven times by the 17th century. Oof. And the other major city, Epernay, no less than 25 times. Destruction from war? War, conquerors, things like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not to mention both world wars, you know, centuries later, right. basically wiped out Champagne in the early 20th century. So besides it being a popular battleground back in the day, the region of Champagne was actually really famous long before they were ever making sparkling wine there. And the Cathedral at Reims was chosen in 987 AD as the coronation site for the French king Hmm. and established Reims as the spiritual capital of medieval France at the time. Okay. In fact, 37 kings of France were crowned there between 816 and 1825. 
Over a thousand years of kings were coronated in that part of France, yeah. But before the mid-1600s, there was no champagne as we think of it today. So for centuries, there were wines that were made there. There were still wines that were held in high regard by the nobility of Europe. But the cool climate of the region and its effect on the winemaking process uh, played a really important part in changing all of that. Okay. It's actually one of the most northern wine-growing regions in the world. Really? Yeah, really harsh winters in Champagne. So because of that, the grapes actually ripen very slowly. Mm. And generally, if you were to make just still wines in Champagne, they would be really, really acidic because they don't ripen enough to have a full amount of sugar in the grapes. Right, okay. Actually, that's one of the main reasons... it's actually perfect for making sparkling wine, which right, I didn't know back then. Like if the grapes were riper, it would be like too sweet, probably. Yeah, there'd be right. too much sugar in there. Absolutely. Right. And actually, I mentioned this a little bit. We owe a lot to Dom Perignon, and kind of as any inventor owes to those who have come before them. So he mm-hmm. owed a lot to the people before him, and you know those who came after obviously owed a lot to him for continuing the process. But he is not the inventor of champagne as is often thrown around there. Um, So Perignon was a Benedictine monk, actually, who in 1688 was appointed treasurer at the Abbey of Hautevillers, which is in, I believe, in Epernay in France, so in the the Champagne region. So for Dom Perignon and his contemporaries at the time, sparkling wine was not actually the desired product. Mm, Accidental discoveries. It wasn't the desired product, (laughs) but it was actually a sign of poor winemaking. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, so he spent a lot of his time uh, actually trying to prevent bubbles and to create a uh, decidedly white wine. <laughs> he made wine. more. <laughs> he made more bubbles. Uh, he, the wines of Champagne at the time were still in like very pale pink mm. uh, and highly acidic. Um, but it was it was drunk by nobility and it was liked by nobility. But he wanted to create something that was white, uh, clear, and something that the royalty would prefer over Burgundy, which is saying something at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, he wasn't obviously able to prevent the bubbles. He failed heavily in that, but he did develop some really great things. He developed the art of blending. So not only did he blend different grape varietals, but actually the juices from the same grape varietal grown in different vineyards because he recognized, kind of like the monks of Burgundy, that the different vineyard sites were giving the different or the same grapes different characteristics. Right, yeah. yeah. He also developed a process to press black grapes to yield white juice. Black grapes. right. I've never heard of black grapes. They're red red wine grapes. Oh, okay. Red anything that makes red wine. The only thing that makes red wine red is, is the skin. skin. Yeah. Every grape on in the inside right. is exactly the same. So he took it upon himself to be a little bit more gentle with how he was pressing the grapes so that the coloration of the skin wasn't leaching into the juice. Mm. Um, and he improved clarification techniques to produce a much brighter wine than any had been produced at that time. So he was really, really Wait, instrumental. You're this was in the 1600s, late okay. 1600s, early 1700s. Yeah. Wow, his name really has yeah. stood the test of time. Absolutely. Uh, historically, too, champagne was really unstable uh, because of the development of bubbles in the bottle. And you right, add that to the like really, explode. right, you <laughs> add that to the lesser quality glass that was being made at the time. Mm. They were basically bottle bombs, just ready to right. explode at any time. You like give someone a bottle of champagne for Christmas and explode. I have had bottle bombs with homebrew before because it's just like an uneven. <laughs> carbonation yeah. situation going yeah. on there it's uh when it happens and you're nearby it's very scary it's really startling <laughs> so to help prevent the exploding bottle problem he began to use stronger bottles that were developed by the english it was a different um i don't know what the right term it's like a thickness so glass. a forging method basically yeah um the hot the fires that they were using to make the glass bottles in, in england were much hotter 
which means they could make thicker, thicker glass because mm. they could get the, the, the sand to be more liquefied. So much thicker, stronger bottles. Uh, and he began closing them with Spanish cork instead of the, the, the method of the time was wood mixed with oil-soaked hemp. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know how that would affect the wine, the oil-soaked hemp. I'm not sure. Right. Um, but he was the first one in Champagne to start enclosing bottles with cork instead of that previous method. Mm. Was cork being used for other types of wine back then? I want to say yes, but I'm not sure. Okay. Didn't come up in the research. Um, and Dom Perignon died in 1715. But for 47 years, he was the cellar master at the Abbey of Hauvillers, and he laid down the basic principles that are still used in making Champagne to this day. Cool. So over 300 years of technique came from this one guy. Wow. Now at the time, champagne was only about, or sparkling champagne, I should say, because the majority of wine from there wasn't sparkling. Sparkling champagne only made up about 10% of the region's output uh, in the 18th century. But um, it started enjoying like increasing popularity as the English and French royalty really latched onto it. And okay. it kind of became... That celebratory, right. luxurious beverage yeah. that we Much know like of today. Much like any other, like a lot of our topics, it was popularized by royalty. By the uber rich, yeah. exactly. There's always that trickle down, that trickle down effect. It seems like, um, and it continued to grow into the 1800s uh, when the sparkling wine industry was well established at that point in France. Now, this is where another luminary takes over the story. The Madame Clicquot. Ooh, I like this story. Yes, that Clicquot. Exactly that Clicquot. Everyone out there knows who I'm talking about, or at least the, the name Clicquot. Now, Madame Clicquot was a powerful, savvy woman. And when her husband died, she was way ahead of her time. When her husband died, she took over his business at the age of 27. Wow. And this was in... How old was her... Like, was her husband older, or he just died suddenly? Uh, he died suddenly, but he was probably older, which wasn't uncommon. Right. Uh, she was born in 1777, so 27, just around 1800, the turn of the century, roughly, um, a little bit after. So early 1800s, this woman takes over a pretty big business in yeah. France, right? And no one says anything about business, it. It was a bunch of different things, but she converted the whole thing into just their wine ventures. Oh, okay. It was di- it was different. Um, it was almost like, like a conglomerate. Yeah, it was like different yeah. things they did. Um, but she had experience with wine. So she's like, we're just going to, we're going to double down on just wine. Um, so when her husband died, at, she was 27. This made her the widow Clicquot mm-hmm. or in French, Veuve Clicquot. Mm-hmm. So that's what the word Veuve actually means I in French. I didn't actually know that. Widow. I knew she was a widow, but I didn't, I didn't know, know that, that it meant was. that either, to be honest with you. Uh, it was really interesting to find out. Now, before uh, Veuve Clicquot came along, um, champagne was a cloudy drink. Because of the way it's aged on the lees, which is another term for it's aged with the yeast in the bottle, as opposed to other wine, which is aged in a barrel and then taken from the barrel and clarified before it puts into a bottle. So this feels like a pretty good place to pause for a minute and outline in a bit more detail how champagne's actually made. Because it's quite involved and a lot of us drink it at very, very special times in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we don't really think about how they actually get this carbonated beverage How did they in get there. The tiny bubbles How did into they the bottle. Do that. Where did this come from? <laughs> Funny you should ask, Trevor. Uh, so, first things first, the grapes are grown, right? And then the grapes are picked by hand, specifically because they're very delicate, between August and October. That time kind of depends on the um, how ripe the grapes the are, how cold the season was. So after picking the grapes, uh, they're pressed very carefully to keep the juices clear white. 
You don't want any of that. You don't want any of the skin. Unless you're making rosé champagne. Yeah. But generally, if you're doing that, you're blending in still red wine. So really, no matter what you're pressing, very, very, very crystal gently. clear juice. Yeah. Uh, and this has made slightly more difficult because, like I said before, two of the three main grapes in making champagne are Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, which are red wine grapes. So mm. the three main grapes of champagne, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, uh, and Chardonnay. Okay. So they're all blended together. So once the juice has been pressed, it's put into a tank and the first fermentation takes place. And the result, like I was mentioning a little bit ago, is a really highly acidic still wine that's been fermented dry completely. So there's really no residual sugar left in the wine because there wasn't a ton of there's sugar in there to begin with. Start, yeah. So it's a very low alcohol, very highly acidic still wine yeah, that is produced. It's not tasting great. Probably. Not tasting great. Um, I am I'm very intrigued, and I hope we can do this if we go to Champagne someday down the line. I'd love to taste still Champagne. Yeah. I'm just, I just cool. want to know what it tastes like. Yeah. Um, and then some wine producers, like um, Alfred Gretzian in Epernay, they choose to ferment actually in a barrel instead of stainless steel, which is a technique that's much more difficult to master with sparkling wine, but it is still done by some houses today. Okay. Next up is the assemblage, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, but it's spelled assemblage. And what that means, it's, it's the art of blending. And it's mm-hmm. the art of blending that Dom Perignon actually mastered. And still white wines are combined with some reserve wines, actually, from previous vintages mm. uh, to create the base wine for Champagne. So again, Pinot, Meunier, uh, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay are all combined together to make these wines. And the assemblage starts in the early spring, so about five months after the harvest. So the wine's aging for about five months, or fermenting yeah. for about five months, I should say. After that is the secondary fermentation. So a mixture of yeast, yeast nutrients, and sugar called liqueur de tirage is added to the wine, and then it's put into those thick glass champagne bottles that we all know. Mm. And it's actually sealed with a bottle cap, like a, uh, a beer bottle cap yeah. at that time. And they're placed in a really cool stone cellar to ferment really slowly and to produce alcohol, more alcohol, and carbon dioxide in the bottle. Okay. So they have their blend, then they mix in additional yeast and sugar mm-hmm. into the bottle and let it sit. Exactly. Exactly. So this is actually the most important stage in making champagne. So the carbon dioxide can't escape from the bottle with that cap on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there was cork in there, it would it would find a way out. Like it would blow. It up would the cork. push the cork out. It would yeah. kind of get through the wood. So the they must have the to wood. like measure the amount of yeast that they put in there, right? Oh yeah, it's because very. Otherwise, if they put like, oh, I'm going to do a scoop here and a no, it's very calculated. double scoop over here. Um, it would probably get a lot of explosions. Right? Yeah, it's very, very calculated. It's an yeah. exact amount for it. It's put into the whole batch, and then it's put into the right. bottles. I think. Oh, I, yeah, I th- yeah, that makes sense. I think. I would think that's how they do it. Yeah. Um, if you're doing it bottle by bottle, this is why my beer be bottle used harder. to explode all the yeah. time. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it's because it wasn't an exact, it wasn't an exact amount. Um, and this is when you actually, when that carbon dioxide starts to form, it's when we start getting the signature bubbles right. you know, of champagne that we know. Now is actually time for the real aging process to start. So as the fermentation proceeds, the secondary fermentation, uh, the yeast cells die after several months or so. But the champagne continues to age in these cool cellars for several more years. A minimum of a year and a half for non-vintage champagne and upwards of five years for some of the more expensive, exclusive champagnes out there. As that happens... um, it kind of gets this toastier, yeastier, 
sometimes brioche mm, character yeah, to it. I was going to say bready. Yeah, it's got like a really sweet bread nose to it, mm. which I, one of my favorite things about champagne is how it smells, like yeah, real true champagne. Them. Yeah, same. And during the aging period, and the reason why this happens is that the yeast cells actually split open and spill into the solution, which is imparting that really complex yeasty flavor to the champagne. Mm. So it actually becomes part, part of the, the liquid, champagne. yeah. Now this next stage... This is where Madame Clicquot left her mark on the world of champagne and changed the game forever. There was no real good way to get the yeast out of the bottles to clarify the wine after secondary fermentation. Mm -hmm. So it was a really cloudy, cloudy. cloudy beverage. Until Madame Clicquot and her team developed the method of what's called riddling or rumage, but in English, riddling, okay. like the Riddler. And you would actually have a job called the Riddler oh. in champagne. Wait, is that, that's not what the Batman guy did, right? No, he, um, he attacked riddles. Batman. Yeah. <laughs> he was Maybe he had like Batman. a side hustle and that's like where he got his name. Exactly. No, I, I think that's probably right. I think that's historic. You definitely understand how champagne works. <laughs> <laughs> after the, uh, so after the aging process is completed, the dead yeast cells are removed through this process known as riddling. So what, what this is and what Clicquot actually uh, invented is the bottle is placed, the champagne bottles are placed upside down in a holder, in a rack, really, at a 75-degree angle. And every single day, the Riddler would go through the cellars, the caves, and turn the bottle an eighth of a turn while keeping it still upside down at that angle. So what this is doing is actually it's forcing the dead yeast very, very slowly towards the neck of the bottle. Okay. So you don't want to do it too quickly because it'll just kind of come out of solution. Right. So very slowly, you literally just tick, 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 turn. Now, this used to be done by hand. It's largely done by machines today. But in some of the very, very small, super exclusive champagne houses out there, if you look at the bottom of a champagne bottle, sometimes you'll see a little white painted dot. Mm. And it's a reference point for the Riddler to know where they've turned it. Exactly. Exactly. Mm, So this happens over years. Literally wow. years. Every day you come in and you just turn bottles. At turn minimum bottles. of a year and a half, right? At the last time I was tested for my SOM certification, yes. It yeah. was like for non-vintage champagne, right. 18 months. For vintage champagne, 36 months and above. Mm-hmm. Now, not every side, – side note, not every vintage – not every year in champagne is a vintage. So you're not going to have like – 2001 champagne 2002 champagne 2003 champagne i mean i think some of those are vintages um but the the entirety of champagne like the committee of champagne Mm -hmm. has to say this year was so good we're gonna we're declaring we're declaring a vintage so most champagne is non-vintage which means it's just blended and produced exactly the same like your standard veuve clicquot tatanger boulanger like things like that if it just says nv yeah, it means non-vintage. non-vintage. Or if there's no year on the bottle, it's right. non-vintage champagne, which doesn't make it any less good. It's just right. very different. Right. So if you get a bottle of champagne with the year on it, you can expect it to be like pretty good. It's because special. Because they're not going to just hand out a vintage to... Any year. Any year, exactly. unless it's really good. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then you can actually, I mean, you can age, you can continue to age... Champagne. Champagne. Since it's secondary fermentation happens in the bottle it will appreciate over time um same thing like with aging any other wine out Mm -hmm. there um yeah vintage champagne is it's more expensive for obvious reasons and people are like well why is champagne so expensive some of what i'm laying out here will explain why 
Right. It's like very a manual lot goes and there's into a lot it, of yeah. technique involved. So much technique involved, so much time involved where these champagne houses are sitting on bottles for, if it's a vintage, at least three years, mm-hmm. which is a long time to have money tied up right, yeah. in your, your cellar. Inventory kind of cellar yeah. inventory. Now, granted, you're pumping out vintage champ- a non-vintage champagne every single year, you know, right. 50, 60, 70 bucks a bottle, depending on the house, um, to make up for that. But yeah. So after Riddling, so now it's been, let's say it's been 18 months for a non-vintage yeah. champagne, right? Slowly rotated All at that 75 degrees. Very gently rotated, rotated, 75 degree angle, an eighth of a turn every single day for that year and a half. Uh, that yeast has now collected at the neck of the bottle, kind of right underneath the bottle cap. So the next step of the process is called disgorgement. And this is the final step in the production of champagne. So the champagne bottle is kept upside down. So they don't, you don't want to tilt it because you, you really just screwed a year and a half of that Riddler's life right? at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the neck of the bottle is frozen, like fast frozen in an ice salt bath. So like super, super cold salt ice water. Okay. Um, so it freezes. It actually makes a plug of frozen wine containing the dead yeast cells right Does at the, the top. the whole bottle freeze? Just like the, it's just, just the, the yeast. Yeah, just That's... that part where the yeast cake is. Yeah. Uh, and then the cap is removed, and the pressure inside the bottle actually pushes the that little out. plug out. Oh, um, and you, you actually lose a little bit of the wine right. in the process. Um, and that's the disgorging. But what happens, the result is you have this crystal clear champagne. Yeah. Uh, and again, a little bit a little bit shoots out. A little bit of that champagne comes out of there. Yeah. Um, but then they cork it for real. Actually, what's next is the dosage. Is the next step. So More steps. More steps. Dosage. <laughs> it quite literally, you'll when yeah. I say what it is, it makes sense. Yeah. So this is when a mixture of white wine, brandy, and sugar called liqueur de... Uh, es- sorry, this one's hard. Liqueur d'expedition. The expeditious liquid. Yeah. It's <laughs> added to the sweetness... Uh, added to adjust the sweetness level. Okay. And top off the bottle. Do they taste... The bottles to see how much sweetness they need to add, or it's just at this like point it's all the same. It's all just it's all the same. So everything that they're it's not like bottle to bottle is going to be different, right? They or know. like I meant, well, I guess there's no vintage. So. Well, no. What the this per, the next step in the, this procedure like decides how sweet or dry the champagne is going to be, and there's mm-hmm. a different range. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole scale, right? So the driest of the dry is called brut nature or brut zero because there's zero dosage. No oh, added sugar okay. to it. It just is how it was. Yeah. So the yeast plug pops out and they... <laughs> I'm going to stop using the term yeast plug. Uh, <laughs> it's not exactly uh, pleasant. So the um, yeast comes out. The yeast uh, comes out. They just out, add a little bit of wine back to it. No extra sugar. And cap it. And, we're done. and they Yeah, and they cork it. Okay. So Brut Nature, Brut Zero is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Then it's Extra Brut, Brut, Extra Dry, Dry, <laughs> Demi-sec and du. Du okay. or moyo, same thing, is the sweetest champagne, which you generally don't get on the American market. Right, yeah. That's the highest level of dosage. Yeah. Generally, what we see is brut or extra brut right. on the market. Yeah. Um, some people love demi-sec champagne. I bet that's probably pretty good. Yeah. It's always been funny to me that dry champagne is on the sweeter end of the scale. Right, <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Go figure. Uh, at this point, once the dosage is added, the bottle's corked. Uh, and then the cork is wired down, as mm-hmm. we all know, that, that cage. cool little wire cage to secure the uh, the pressure that's inside the bottle is really, really high. Yeah. I'll have a fun fact about that later. Um, so the next time you have a glass of champagne and kind of take a look at that crystal clear complexion, just remember that we have a really great woman to thank for that. The grand dame of champagne herself, mm-hmm. Madame Clicquot. Madame Clicquot. 
way ahead of her time. Badass women. Yeah. Boss bitch. Making history. Boom. <laughs> uh, now, unfortunately, she did pass away, as people do. Uh, she was almost 90 years old, though. Wow. That's she lived until 1866. And between her death and 1914, so about 40-ish years, 50-ish years, Champagne saw a boom in popularity around the world. Um, but then World War One broke out in 1914 and again brought devastation to the wine region yeah. of Champagne. So the early months of the war saw a rapid uh, German advance into northern France, which is where Champagne is. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the fall of 1914, they were camped out south of the River Marne, but by 1915, they were driven back just north of the city of Reims. Um, and the enormous caves under the city, actually Roman chalk quarries that were repurposed by the champagne makers. They were used for storage and production of champagne, but were converted to be shelters during oh, World War I wow. for the thousand days of bombardment the city endured for four years. Oh my God. Just constant bombing. Wow. And it had to be completely rebuilt, literally, entirely right. rebuilt after the war. Wow. Actually, Winston Churchill, before he was famous for being uh, prime minister, been the, the big prime minister of World War II, he was a huge fan. And he's even quoted as having said during World War I, because I think he was he was in the military at the time. Mm-hmm. Remember, gentlemen, it's not just France we are fighting for. It's Champagne. <laughs> Clever That's man. True. Clever man. And the years after the Great War were super difficult, too, because the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia came along, Prohibition, like we talked about mm-hmm. in the United States, the Great Depression, and all of that saw the champagne market dry up, right? Um, which is highly unfortunate. And the champagne houses, they just stopped buying grapes from farmers. Right. So the growers formed the first champagne co-ops at that time as like a necessity, which still exists to this day. And then at the end of Prohibition in 1933, the industry began to turn around again. So the, the head of Moet Chandon at the time, Robert Jean de Vuget, was really instrumental in securing its future, the whole champagne industry. He actually proposed that the purchase price of champagne grapes be set at a a set level, which would ensure that uh, the farmers and growers would get a decent living wage. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, some really early labor laws around that. Yeah. And actually in 1941, during the German occupation of France, he became the driving force in persuading the Germans to establish uh, the very successful, I'm going to say this very poorly, Comité Interprofessionnel du Vin de Champagne, uh, or the CICC, which is like the, the governing of... body of, of Champagne. They're the people who declare vintages mm. for Champagne. Now, since World War II, Champagne sales have climbed upwards every single year, and they nearly quadrupled between 1945 and 1966. Wow. And it's been, you know, we kind of mentioned this before, but Champagne trickled down the social scale from the top down. Uh, so it's no longer just a luxury. I mean, it is still a luxury item, but it's not right. just for the super rich. Right. You can get a $7 bottle of, well, maybe not champagne. Not champagne, no. <laughs> you cannot like do that. Barefoot. But a really or good something. $40 or $50 bottle yeah. of champagne. Right. Um, so today, actually, to this day, at this point in time, champagne, more champagne is being drunk by people around the world than at any previous time in history. Mm. Which is actually kind of an easy thing to say now that I think about it, because there's just more people than ever have been. But But it's really great. This thing just came from, it was an accidental discovery. Yeah, that's, I love those kind of stories. It does make you think, I mean, because if we didn't have figureheads fighting for the preservation of champagne and it could have gone away entirely it totally could have gone away. And it makes you think of like, I wonder how many other things in history just disappeared. It just kind of disappeared. Yeah, it's um, true. We may never know. We will probably never know. But 
Stay tuned for season two of Where Did This Come From? Where did it go? <laughs> Where did it go? The spinoff series of Where Did This Come From? Oh, anyway. Uh, um, some fun facts about yeah. Champagne. So the Avenue de Champagne, uh, which is in, I think it's in Rance or Epernay, Epernay. I'm not sure. I don't can't remember which city it's in. It's one of the most expensive streets in the entire world. Because like of to the, purchase No, just because or? of what's there. So okay. there's millions of bottles of champagne stored in the cellars beneath it oh, on that specific wow, road. It's where awesome. a lot of the storage cellars are. Um, actually, there's over 155 miles of champagne cellars underneath the city of Rance, holding around 200 million bottles at any given time. Whoa. Just waiting. Yeah, that's... Fascinating. Yeah. And actually, Champagne produces about 300 million bottles of Champagne every single year. Wow. That's a lot. Divide that by 12. That's a lot of cases. Yeah, that's a lot of cases. That's 25 million. 25 million cases of Champagne every single year. That's a lot of, that's that's a lot lot of bubbles. Of actually, 33% of all Champagne sales every single year are made in November and December. Wow. I mean, that does... Yeah, it makes sense. A celebratory time, It typically. is, for a lot of people. In a single bottle of champagne, there's approximately 49 million bubbles. Oh, that's a cute little fun fact. <laughs> a lot of bubbles. That's a lot of bubbles. A lot of bubbles. Uh, you're, this one that cracks me up, because <laughs> I've seen some people get seriously injured. You're more likely to be killed by a stray champagne cork than by being bitten by a, a poisonous spider. Hmm. It's a very weird comparison. It's a weird comparison, but the <laughs> but, statistics don't lie. Yeah. More people are killed every single like, year by a champagne cork than poisonous spiders. Wow. That's interesting. I do remember when Trevor and I were working in the restaurant, I used to actually ask him to do champagne service for my tables because I was yeah. scared. After I did actually learn after a while, and now I really love opening champagne. It's so. great. Laura would watch my section for me while I would open champagne for her table. Like, I can't. That's too much pressure. Which on paper is like, oh, that's adorable. And everyone around us was like, ugh. <laughs> ugh. Yeah. Come on, you two. I don't even think we were dating at the time. Yeah, we were. Were we? Well, I mean, I continued it into our relationship. I didn't like yeah. stop doing it when we started dating. <laughs> You're on your own now. <laughs> eh. You're done. Yeah. Um, um, Marilyn Monroe apparently at some point took a bath in champagne. Which this bothers me because it took 350 bottles to fill up the tub. What? What a waste. That's a huge waste. Wash your butt with water like everybody else. <laughs> Gosh. That's weird. One of the weirdest uses for champagne during the 19th century, high society used it to polish their boots. That sounds sticky. It does sound sticky. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Who, who knows? Yeah. I'm not going to try it. That's for sure. I will drink it. Yeah. Uh, also, in the in the James Bond films, James Bond is known for drinking martinis. Martini. Yep. Shaken, not stirred. Going against the grain there. Yeah. Whole nother episode. <laughs> uh, he actually drinks more champagne in the movies than any other drink. Oh, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. So that's it. Those are the fun facts. That's the uh, as concise as I can be about champagne. Yeah, anyway. that was a good high level overview. That's good job. Way to keep I went, it. I, keep I, it tight. I, I, I towed the line going in depth on the on the method of champagne, but okay. it was important. It's interesting. It was important. Uh, so some resources for this. I had in, uh, intowine.com, winecountry.com, champagnebooking.com, winefolly.com, 
and glassofbubbly.com. All really helpful publications in getting the notes together for this one. Fabulous. Yeah, Good absolutely. episode, Chad. Thanks, La. Uh, I'm really excited for New Year's Eve so we can drink champagne. Me too. And just boot 2020 to the curb and start fresh in 21. It's going to be hard to start, of course. Yeah. It's not going to change overnight. No. But it's going to be good to get a fresh start. Clean slate. It'll be nice to have, I don't know, we've got like some good things on the horizon. like Great stuff. A new president and vaccines and, you know... And season two of Where Did This Come From? <laughs> yep, those, coming those at are a, the top coming three. Coming at an undisclosed date in 2021. <laughs> yeah, no, it'll it'll be a good year. And I know a lot of people have gone through a lot of stuff this year. Yes, of course. Um, so if you're hanging on by a thread, just keep on hanging on. We got this. Brighter days are definitely ahead. Brighter days are sure. ahead. Um, On that note, yeah. we're gonna miss you guys. Yeah, we love you, you. And we're gonna we're gonna go into hibernation for a little bit, get some rest. Yep. Uh, turn the brains off for several weeks, but you'll still yeah. be hearing from us. Um, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platforms. Yep. And you can follow us on Instagram, which is at Where Did This Come From Pod. So that's at Where Did This Come From underscore Pod. Uh, we give updates on episodes and quizzes and some dog pics. So give us a follow. Give us a follow. And give us a follow. Yeah, we look forward to uh, seeing you again for season two in 2021. Yes, everybody in the meantime, take care, be well, stay healthy. And we'll see you next season on Where Did This Come From? Bye. That's a wrap. <laughs>